Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Seek Outside podcast. My name is Dennis. Um, Kevin is joining me today from his home. And then our guest for today's podcast is Ford Van Fossen. Did I say that correctly? Perfectly. Perfect. Um, he is the, the conservation and content manager at First Light, if you've ever heard of that company. We were just chatting about that a little bit. Um, and we're, we're going to cover many topics today, but uh, I think Kevin has one he would like to start with. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know if we were starting with wolves or bears or what, so I'm a little unclear here. But just off the thing, I mean, Ford, you kind of do a little bit of what old Cal used to do. And I've always associated the mustache as just an Idaho thing. And right now I'm having a hard time looking at you um, and saying, like, this guy is from Idaho because there's a lack of a mustache there. I mean, the Brooks Brothers, you know, seems like everyone I see from Idaho has that mustache. It's true. Sadly lacking there. Um, I'm still actually waiting for puberty. It's supposed to come around. I think at some point and I just turned 30, so I, I ought to be pretty close, but, um, I did actually once have a mustache about two years ago and it was all right. It wasn't great. Um, like I said, I think, you know, puberty's gathering steam. So now I, I can grow some facial hair, but it's still not spectacular. And my, um, my better half is not uh, enamored with the mustache or facial hair of any real description for that matter. And, you know, she's the main consumer of said, you know, <laughs> of, yeah, um, of the product. Exactly. <laughs> she's the main consumer of the product. <laughs> uh, as, as, uh, exactly. As a, as a marketing professional, uh, you know, you got to make sure that the product is uh, as the consumer would want it. And so largely I, I do, I do shave. Although I wouldn't say I'm meticulous about it. Um, I kind of here and there, maybe as need be. Product Mm. placement. So I guess you have a firm understanding of the product placement. Now, I do have a little story, side story there. Um, New Year's Eve, um, my son, Owen, and his girlfriend, Grace, were here. And some of their friends that they went to high school with. One of them, I'm not going to name their name. Uh, but if that person happened to be listening to this podcast, they would absolutely know who they are. Um, <laughs> because while they were out making a fire outside that we we're going to have around for New Year's Eve or whatever, um, that person's girlfriend was absolutely ragging them for the quality of their facial hair and mustache. Um, and claiming that she was much better at growing said facial hair than he was. Um, <laughs> it was it was quite entertaining. And so then I made a little comment about the mustache at some point, and he was just like, oh, God, I know where this came from. Like, he knew that... He knew that in his marketing world, that his prime consumer, his girlfriend, was not impressed with his ability to grow facial hair and was going around on the backside telling everyone, hey, I can grow better facial hair than he can. So, <laughs> uh, uh, How do you combat that with a little miracle Grove or, or, you know, like a, are there pills for, for mustache growing well, ability? Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I'm not familiar with that industry, but, um, I, you know, like I said, I just kind of, I, I chop it as it comes, so to speak. Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, I've never been a great grower of mustaches either. So, but my main consumer prefers the mustache look, and I don't really care. So, I leave the few little pokey hairs I have there for my <laughs> prime consumer understanding that marketplace. Smart. <laughs> Smart. I think that's a smart move, Kevin. I, I think she just doesn't like to see my face and its natural surrounding, you know. She's like, oh, my. That is, a factor. that is a factor. It does hide stuff, too, which is nice, but it is what it is. <laughs> uh, so from there, we're jumping right into wolves. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, we're not going to do that. Um, so Ford, conservation content manager at First Light. Um, I know we had uh, participated in this kind of common wild initiative in the fall. Um, is that still something that that's going strong uh, in the first light uh, ecosystem, I guess? Yeah. Remind me to harass you about that after the call there, Dennis. No, sure. we are, we are building uh, the second. Well, that sounds grandiose. Uh, I've just started thinking about the, the 2.0 and, and I guess for those, listening common wild or the campaign we put together last year was sort of a, a collection of outdoor businesses uh, from across the spectrum from women's mountain biking apparel to hunting rifles uh, that came together to sell a common benefit product that would be donated to con the, the funds generated from which would be donated to conservation nonprofits and really more importantly to make a statement that conservation especially in in 2020 in a divided election year was something that could unite Americans uh, when, when in fact, we, we have trouble agreeing on much else, basically. And so, yeah, we're putting together 2.0 right now. And I, as I said, I'll be harassing you probably before too long, Dennis, about that and, and about sort of what that campaign will look like. I think it's going to be a little more diverse, a little expanded, and, and hopefully having uh, a greater impact in our, in our industry, in the outdoor world. Now, you guys, and we talked about this a little bit beforehand, I consider us to be very similar companies. Obviously, you guys are giant in comparison to us, um, known throughout the world, um, part of the meat eater conglomerate. Um, but as far as being, you guys are located out in a ski town. We really started um, relatively close to a ski town in the mountains. Our manufacturing is a bit out in the desert because we needed to go where there were some people um, to do it. Um, but we've always had very much a common focus on conservation, um, public lands, and you know pushing the limits of gear for hunting and backpacking. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we have always shared a similar a similar uh, ethos when it comes to conservation. I mean, you know, Seek was uh, a, a foundational supporter of backcountry hunters and anglers, as far as I can remember. As mm -hmm. far as Earthlight's been involved, and maybe longer, I don't know. Uh, and, and I've always very much viewed that as core to y'all's business model, um, and and I think. You know that's both admirable and, and honestly still to some degree and this is changing but some to some degree unique i think we were at the very first rondi the very first official rondi which i guess is where it's going to be this year as well mm -hmm. and um out of a stroke of dumb luck angie and myself you know with this little tent company outdoor company we're just kind of you know 
really green at this whole thing, right? This is like one of our first shows, and we're like, hey, we make these tents, and and we end up sitting at a table with two guys named Steve and Matt. Um, and Matt was really funny, you know, and we had a little bit of an idea who Steve was, but it was just the odd irony. He was the guest speaker, and it wasn't like we were like fanboys like oh my god we got to find the table that steve's going to be at or whatever you know and we didn't even really know steve was going to be at that table matt sat there didn't know really who matt was and started thinking this dude's pretty funny you know Uh, and then it turns out of course he's steve's brother and that was kind of how that relationship uh started i mean uh if people think it was like um genius marketing on angie or my's um part it was not it was dumb luck it was just that intersection of opportunity and availability um more than anything and then a few months later all of a sudden they're like hey you think we could get a tent and that was kind of where it started you know they got our number through a friend and that was it yeah totally and really you know first sight's history with steve is similar i mean i believe and i could be corrected by the parties involved here but I believe that Cal just ended up guiding Steve, I think, on some hunt. Um, obviously, he ended up going on a number of hunts with him, but I, I believe they might have just kind of met per chance, either through a guided hunt or at least through outfitters involved. And really, you know, Cal's relationship with Steve was is where First Light's relationship with Steve came out of and, and obviously really ultimately turned into a uh, – a business relationship, uh, even below, you know, beyond influence or ambassadorship even. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't know on that. I do, I do know that Cal used to be a registered guide in Canada. Mm-hmm. And like, if you're not a registered guide in Canada, you need to have one to hunt in Canada. And I could see there could be a pretty good connection there of Steve wanting to hunt in Canada and Cal being the guy and then being like, this guy's kind of entertaining and, is pretty decent on TV too, you know. He's got a great yeah. mustache, great yeah, mustache great going mustache. on. Yeah, he really, yeah. he's really got that Idaho look nailed, you know. So, although he would clarify that he is a Montanan, uh, born yes, and although yeah. he spent many years in Idaho, I, I believe he also maybe did some guiding in Idaho and Montana. I forget the murky details on Cal, but you know, obviously Cal was. Uh, the first person that Kenton and Scott hired at First Light, employee number one. Um, and, and then obviously moved over to Meat Eater, but, um, you know, really still a co-worker to some degree. Hmm. The only thing you picked up from Idaho then was was a good job and a mustache. Something like that, yeah. 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 Well, what we should do is we should rag Cal a little bit on here, so he needs to come on here and defend himself. Hmm. Uh, you know, that would get him out of the Meat Eater bubble. And, uh, you know, then, then we could say, yes, we have Cal, the star Cal on our show. <laughs> exactly. Um, for, so like speaking of hunting and, and being involved with first light, um, you recently did a hunt, uh, down in New Mexico, correct? For, um, for Oryx. Yep. That is, that's correct, Dennis. Uh, I, and it's funny you bring up Cal here because, uh, I, so I went, I set out, uh, to put in for Oryx in New Mexico. I'm sort of 
fascinated by the critter. They're spectacular animals. And, and I'd, I sort of ironically seen them in Africa, spending some time over there um, through school and, and work and whatnot, and had kind of become enamored with the idea of applying for these critters here, you know, on U.S. soil, free ranging in New Mexico. And uh, Cal is also enamored with the species and has been applying for a long time. So when I drew the first time I put in to what is a, a very difficult draw, he was, he wasn't, he was angry and not, I would say in like a joking way. I think it was perhaps real anger <laughs> that I had pulled this tag the first year I put in, which to be clear, I, you know, he's correct. I didn't obviously, it, the odds were slim, but somehow I defied them. And, and the funny thing too is, you know, talking to some contacts down there, they'd say, Hey, put in for the summer hunts. They're the, they're the easiest to draw because they're miserable because it's a million degrees um in the desert and i believe i even i think i my upper choices were all those summer hunts and i managed to draw this march one which you know arguably between the weather and it being out of many north american big game seasons is the best i would argue you know one of those Hmm. early spring or spring hunts and so I, i not only drew but drew maybe the most optimal tag of the bunch. So can can you can you explain a little bit on the draw process for New Mexico? Is it similar where everybody just goes into a hat and and they just they just pull a random name out of the hat and so so as a first time applicant you obviously have a chance to draw it. Yup. They are like Idaho in that uh, it is a random draw every year. So there are no there are no preference points. Um, there's no sort of ranked system to get in largely at least that i'm aware of um Mm -hmm. it's pretty much a random draw there's some complications with outfitter draw and some other little here's and there's but largely it's like idaho you put in every year and you you they pull a name out of the hat um Mm -hmm. and so to that point you know actually i had the same the same odds i suppose as cal who had been putting in for several years but you're making me you're making me jealous now too no i haven't I haven't put in. I've wanted to. I've been dissuaded by the low odds. Um, perhaps you, perhaps you should. Now you're an inspiration, right? But perhaps you should double down and put in for Gila elk as well as you're at it. And perhaps. And yeah. see if you could just be like Mr. Lucky New Mexico. Well, it's funny. I went to look this year. You know, I cho- I didn't put in for Oryx. Just I don't know. It felt like sort of doubling up on fate for 2021 <laughs> for whatever reason, which is probably a mistake. But I went to look at Ibex because, you know, that's another free-ranging exotic they got running around down there, pretty spectacular animals. And I looked at the odds on Ibex, and I was like, nah, not worth the $74 or whatever it actually costs to apply. And, yeah. and so to some degree, I'm almost surprised that I looked at the odds on Oryx and thought that that was a reasonable choice huh. because it wasn't arguably probably – but I did, and I drew. So okay, and then and then I need a little bit more clarification. You said that like the the hunt you drew wasn't even maybe a first choice of yours. I, I I'm pretty sure it wasn't because again, folks had told me that it would you should put in if you just want to draw you should put in for June, July, and August, um, which you know uh, y'all are closer climatically down there, but it, I guess it it, it can be. It's hot. ungodly hot. Yeah. Um, you're trucking around huge amounts of ice. You got to, you know, the meat, getting the meat out is sort of a sprint to the finish. And, and I know this too, because Steve Rinella, um, who, who was, uh, kind of primed me for this. He actually drew 
in June of 2020 and had filled the tag down there in June. And so, you know, he was telling me firsthand about sleeping under the truck and it's 105 degrees and this, that, and the other. And, you know, Mm. people literally running quarters out of the brush back to the truck um, as they were breaking the thing down because it was just so hot um, and just getting it in ice and, and really even like, you know, kind of saying screw it when it kind of came to keeping the meat dry and separate from ice and just getting it in ice water. Because as he put it, I think moist, cold meat is preferable to spoiled meat, which is sort of Mm. the other option. Maybe you should have like a fan and some sort of spritzer thing on your back is your how far how far away from the truck were they yeah I was gonna so say, could you, yeah yeah could you have, like, yeah what about what about one of those things that you freeze something with right like you uh you spray like it liquid on nitrogen yeah like liquid <laughs> nitrogen maybe you have a pack of that um, yeah i mean i think dry ice in that situation probably could have been Prudent? I don't know. Josh Koontz, actually, you know, I believe an ambassador of y'all's and, and a hunting partner of mine, he messes around with dry ice quite a bit, um, even just in September elk hunts. He sort of prides himself on taking a cheap igloo and sort of retrofitting it slash packing it with so much intention that it'll hold ice for a week or whatever. Uh, you know Josh, and his he's just meticulous and analytical, perhaps to a fault. Um, yes. and so, I, I have his uh, I have his spreadsheet he sent me after our podcast uh, of his gear list and, and whatnot, um, and going through that, I was like, yeah, yep, he he knows he he's got a dial, right? He's the definition of toothbrush cutter. I mean, yeah. he doesn't, you know, that would be insulting to him that he would cut a toothbrush. I think he has like a micro toothbrush with. A, <laughs> I, I kid you not, probably a tube of toothpaste that's the size of like six peas. Then he sort of like extrudes onto his tiny toothbrush, and does, does he? Uh, He's okay. probably skeletonized the toothbrush. Oh, drilled yeah, a couple, so the, two or three it's got holes, like four on bristles it. on it. Well, yeah. he get what the hell it was, but he did have something. We we hunt opening weekend together, archery elk in Idaho with a couple of brothers every year, and some he had something this year that he had he had drilled damn holes in it, like all over it, just to make it lighter. Um, <laughs> And it was something, you know, sort of mundane, like, uh, God, I don't know. I, 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 what it is, is escapes me. But, yes, the degree to which he counts ounces is spectacular, I would say. Mm-hmm. And, and a, you know, a great a great gear tester in that regard. Was, was he, uh, you said toothpaste like, like peas. I've seen people that take toothpaste and they'll dry it out into like little, you know, they're like, I don't know, little bricks, yeah, you know, absolutely. and then they bring that instead of, instead of like a tube of toothpaste, you know, or a little small tube of toothpaste or whatnot, they, they like guess, dry it out and then rehydrate it when they're, yeah. Yeah. My guess on that is that he, I feel like I've seen some, you know, the, that kit they give you on international flights, it's got the micro toothpaste tube in it. Mm-hmm. That is my guess is he's like somehow sniffed out the Swedish supplier of <laughs> British Airways toothpaste capsules <laughs> or whatever, and he's got them importing directly from sweden sure yeah yeah <laughs> he's incredible great guy josh is a, just a great guy great hunting partner um every elk opener i've ever hunted i've hunted with josh actually hmm. all right so, uh, I, so grass. I don't remember where we were before we yeah, started we'll, we'll just go back to the orcs so what was uh 
what was hunting them like, right? Like, is it uh, a lot of glass and from the truck? Yeah. Yep. It's, I would say it's analogous to hunting antelope in the West as in pronghorn antelope. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the country is brushier. The antelope are, you know, the, the oryx are far less obvious and there's far less of them. So, you know, there were days we, we actually had, um, Steve Vanilla's UTV that we trailered down there to just rip around these crappy BLM desert roads. Um, some of which were so washed out, you probably couldn't get most trucks through them. And so we would rip around in the ATV and sort of stop at increments, stop at water tanks or windmills and get out and stand on top of the UTV or get up on something, you know, get up as high as we can because it's rather flat and just sort of take in country. Um, and, you know, there were days where we drove, I think, 60 miles in the UTV. Um, and mm. there were days where we didn't turn up an Oryx, period. So they just exist seemingly at low densities. Now, eventually we kind of found them, so to speak. We found a big herd of them um, where they were grazing on some grass and they were actually off limits, so to speak. They were on a USDA, I believe it is, experimental grazing range and you couldn't hunt them there. So they had kind of piled up there. But generally speaking, really low density, kind of hard to spot because of both the brushiness of the landscape and its flatness. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of, a lot of driving, a lot of glassing, honestly, it was a grind. I mean, Mm. I find that that way of hunting, you know, kind of road hunting to some degree to be pretty tough mentally, ironically, even though physically it's not hard, but just, okay, we're going to drive 10 minutes here. We're going to stop again. We're going to glass again for 15 minutes. So it was definitely a grind. Um, but it sort of paid out, I suppose, in the long run. My preference on hunting is that it has to be an experience that I'm into, right? So while it was great that you guys were in the colder seasons, I mean, the sleeping under a pickup truck in 105 degree weather, that's not the experience I'm looking for. I would I would rather be in blowing wind on some island off of Alaska with torrential rain. Not by a lot. I mean, yeah. it's a very thin line there. But I would rather be in that, having that experience, than sleeping under the pickup truck like uh, a southern dog trying to escape the heat. Oh, yeah. And getting covered in dust and sand. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. That, and that's, I think that's any time of year there. Like, mm-hmm. the wind was definitely present a lot, and the dust was constant, and the sand, and everything everything was just dusty everything was sandy (laughs) and that was just part of the equation but i agree kevin in all honesty i was thinking to myself the other day when i put in again for oryx i actually think i'll put in for like and i'm not actually sure if you can put in for all these months but like december january february march you know i think i would just put in for the winter because i I don't and spring because i don't I agree. I don't think that would have been a ton of fun i think that would have been pretty pretty uh it would have been harder. It would have been harder for sure. And, and the thing is too, I guess, you know, my only, or my, a lot of my reference was Steve's hunt and what he told me about it and what the guys down there that he was um, nice enough to introduce me to kind of told me about it. And they, they tagged out in four days, um, which, you know, I kind of internalized as like, Oh yeah, it'll only take four days for sure. Right. And 
it was very difficult. Like I said, just finding animals was difficult. And then getting in on them was very hard. Um, in that they have what I would call the vision of an antelope. I mean, their, their eyesight was incredible. They didn't really, you couldn't really get away with particularly anything it seemed like with them. Um, and they're, they were just sort of in their element out in this brush and, and it was both completely flat, but undulating slightly. So they would disappear into these 10 foot rolls, um, and you would lose them and you're like, well, all right, let's go out there. Let's put a stock on them. They're like two miles away. Uh, generally in this direction we don't really know how far it was now we can't see it anymore and so you're just kind of out there in the brush and that's just their environment and trying to get on them in this brush where you could only see 100 yards or 200 yards um, before they saw you was extremely difficult um extremely difficult and it it was i'll be honest it was one of those hunts where you know four or five days in i'm thinking to myself like I don't know how this is going to come together, you know, much like archery hunting, right. In general, where sure. <laughs> a, a, an unsuccessful stock or two or, or session with an elk or especially archery stock and stock archery antelope, you know, your mind just goes like, this is a waste of time. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah there's, together. there's no scenario you can make up in your head where, where it works out in oh, your uh, favor. It ever. is, oh, it is um, doing hunting cows deer in Arizona with mm-hmm. a self bow and homemade arrows mm-hmm. the you know i mean i haven't went that far self bow homemade arrows i did hunt them with a recurve right mm-hmm. and it's just like after seven or ten days you're just kind of like totally shaking your head you're like wow this is i'm seeing some cool country and i'm hiking a lot but i don't i don't think the meat is going to overcome my calorie deficit that i have uh mm-hmm. um incurred and it's it's not one of those things that um it's not one of those things you're going to do for the uh glut of extra calories you're going to get it's uh it's for the challenge and the fun of hunting a very spooky um species and seeing matching wits and seeing if you can uh um how stealthy you can be yeah very much so. Yeah, it very much felt like that man, that that archery hunt mentality, and um, and you know, the, but I will say the odd thing is that the success rates are pretty damn high for these things, which kind of made me feel like I was doing it wrong, you know, to some degree. I think the success rates are, I don't know, but I, I believe they're forty, fifty, sixty percent somewhere in there. Which how many not- of them are? How many of them are guided? I wonder if they mm-hmm. include guided stuff. Um, within it because i mean obviously if you're guided and you got people that are following those critters around the bulk mm-hmm. of the year and have gotten a pretty good pattern for where they hang um i would see yeah that yeah your success rate would go yeah way up. and that, that could be part of it the interesting thing is though i believe you can actually new mexico has obviously some, some pretty different um some pretty different i guess views or, or systems in regard to private land right down there and, yeah. and so one intricacy of that is i believe they're private i i am going to misquote it here but private landowners can i believe more or less kill as many oryx on private ground as they like then and that could be wrong but what i'm saying is the opportunity is is far better on private ground 
in terms of getting tags, in terms of filling tags. So where I'm going is I believe a lot of outfitters do operate on private ground down there for orc hunts. Um, so that's a factor too. And, but I don't believe that would play into the statistics on this hunt, this off range public. Oh, really? Okay. I believe. And mm-hmm. don't quote me. I'm sure New Mexicans are angry already. But Somebody's yelling. Yeah. But the long and short of it, like I said, is it's quite a bit easier to obtain opportunity for orcs on private land. Yeah. Um, so how was the, uh, the meat of it? Was it uh, antelope or was it elky? Did you shoot one? Uh, yes, I did. So we connected on, uh, on the eighth, the eighth, ninth or eighth night and actually recovered it the next day on the ninth, uh, day of the hunt. And so we did, we did fill a tag, which was awesome. Uh, like I said, I, my mindset was, was definitely drifting in the negative, uh, <laughs> throughout the hunt, but we, we did get it done. We killed a, a pretty old bull and, uh, and I should stop. This, I, th- when I say old bull, I, I, that sounds like I like targeted this thing and like put in the work and was skillful and whatever. That's not the case. This was the oryx that we got on and we killed it. Um, and the, the meat, you know, people speak volumes about the meat uh, being the best, being all these things. So far, I have eaten backstrap and kebabs. Um, and the backstrap, I would describe as extremely mild similar maybe to like a eastern whitetail or an elk um and the kebabs were kebabs that were highly spiced so that's relevant but kind of tbd on the flavor but so far you know very good very mild meat i would say so far maybe analogous to like i said whitetail or elk or something in that department Hmm. that's awesome uh, how, Mm -hmm. how big was he I believe about 400 pounds, maybe a bit more. So very, you know, small cow, very large mule deer is how I would describe it, um, hefting the quarters around. They're a little bit different shape. They've got kind of a horsey shape. They're in the, the horse antelope tribe. Um, but, yeah, I mean, 400-ish, 450. Um, the, the buddy we were with who Steve kind of had – linked us up with who, you know, I'm fully indebted to on the hunt. This guy, uh, Jeremy Romero of the national wildlife federation was integral. I mean, he knows the country. He was grinding it out with me. I'm, I'm fully indebted. I would not have filled the tag and I'll think without him. And, and anyhow, he looking at the critter as we, as we kind of broke it down, he said, I believe he said, they don't, they don't really get bigger than this. This was sort of as large in the, as they get. And he felt it was, a six plus year old bull and, and ultimately the taxidermist I, I took the critter to agreed he thought it was older than six and, and that that was oldish for oryx I, I i regret i should have pulled a tooth to have it semantomanuli aged um but i sort of spaced on that and, and i think the taxidermist had actually discarded the jaw before i was able to remember to ask him about it so so their meat quality is good. Uh, mm-hmm. I've typically associated better meat quality with um, animals that reside in more lush um, terrain that I find more desirable. Now, maybe mm-hmm. my perspective is wrong, but I know like when I hunted my Audad in, te- in West Texas, I was told that um, they had had chefs in, and there really wasn't any animal that you could actually kill on that 
ranch that actually tasted good. Um, you know, they would all taste relatively good if you put them in the mountains in British Columbia, um, but then it would be an absolutely different hunt, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and from some of the people I know, I mean, that seems to be relatively uh, consistent. Um, so were they finding a good source or are they like this animal that can take uh, crap in and not turn it into crap out? Hard saying. I mean, so that environment is incredibly arid, um, at least in my worldview. As I said, I actually have spent a, a, a bit of time in sub-Saharan Africa, and it was the most African place I've ever been by far, which was appropriate for chasing an introduced African animal. Hmm. Um, I mean, there was literally sand dunes, red sand dunes in places. It was pretty exotic um, that way. And there wasn't much for plants. I'm, I'm sort of a, uh, a nerdy naturalist guy, and you know that we're, you were looking at at least this time of year. There's like a five or six plants, I would say, in most places. Uh, you know, mesquite, uh, pretty pretty hard looking stuff. A lot of spines, a lot of cactus. Um, and what we did sort of key on there's these remnant grasslands, and it's sort of my understanding that uh, that landscape was largely grassland, sort of these, um, you know, dry climate adapted grasses before heavy grazing sort of was rolled out by the Europeans. And there was, and I, I, I'm not an expert, I don't know if that's true or not, but there were certainly these remnant grasslands, areas where it, you know, appeared more moisture or whatever, it sort of accumulated these grassy flats. And we did, it did seem like to some degree, at least this biggest herd we ultimately found was sort of associated with that grass, that they were keying in on that and that um, maybe that was their preferred feed. And I don't, I forget what the grass was called, black seed or something along those lines, I feel like. But, you know, it seemed like that was a preferred food and maybe that was, maybe that was the result of their flavor. But to your point, I mean, maybe, I, I don't want to key them in on antelope on pronghorn antelope yet as a comparison, but maybe that's a comparison in terms of, you know, taking pretty arid country and pretty sparing forage and turning it into some pretty tasty venison, right? Um, And I would agree. I think pronghorn is generally pretty tasty, but I've also talked to guides who guide antelope here in Colorado, right? mm -hmm. They say grasslands antelope are much tastier than sageland antelope. Yeah. So... That wouldn't surprise me. I don't know. Yeah, that definitely wouldn't surprise me. But long and short of it is it's definitely tasty. And I'm looking forward to, I don't know, probably it seems like I haven't ground, I haven't ground up the, the ground, so to speak, or the, you know, the scrapped meat yet. But I, I think it'll be like 150, 200 pounds, it looks like, of meat somewhere in that department. It's, it's a load for sure. Hmm. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Good time. A really good time. Met some great people down there, hung out in a totally new place. I'd never spent any time in the desert Southwest or seen it for that matter. And it was really, I don't, I don't know if I could drip, uh, you know, kind of drawn up a, a better story and, and finish and all that good stuff. Hmm. Hmm. Excellent. Sweet, man. So, so you've, moral of the story is apply for oryx because you're you're guaranteed to draw your first time and if you don't get it the first time you're never going to get one well like i said when i went back and looked at sort of the odds and the situation this year i was like 
geez, that's <laughs> long. I did, I did that. Um, but you know, now that, um, into the critter, I think I will probably continue to apply in the future. Uh, you know, and there's there's details in terms of on range hunts and off range hunts and broken horn hunts, and there is some, you know, intricacies to it. But it's a, it's a tough draw, especially for a non resident across the board. Um, but they're just such spectacular animals. I mean, I don't hard to hard to come up with a prettier sight than an oryx galloping full on, you know, across the desert. Almost, you know, it's honestly shooting one. You know, when you, sh- I don't know if y'all are upland hunters, but, you know, all, all upland game birds are beautiful critters, and you shoot one, and you're like, oh, this is awesome. You stick in your game bag, and you've, like, ruined it, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Mean, Not to get poetic, but I think it has to do with that, you know, the sort of mankind's desire to possess natural beauty. But when it comes down to it, you know, when you shoot the oryx, it's a dead oryx, it's a pile of meat, right? Um yeah, yeah, I mean, so you, know, you got to deal with that paradox. But just seeing them run around again, I think, might be worth the price of admission is the long and my, short of it. My goal this next winter is to spend most of my most of the winter in New Mexico and Arizona upland hunting, and maybe oh, well, yeah. <laughs> bring in a little cow's deer hunting. I mean, I told, I did spend a week down screwing around in the Gila in February. I was just really uh car camping and um had a hike to hot spring bathing strategy um mm. which which was quite fun actually yeah. you know um um and it it was relatively mild and i told angie that you know i really want to try that for a whole year i want to just um be a bird hunting bum for most of next winter um between those two states so, hey, man, um, maybe we can get together and do some bird hunting down there. Um, I'm into it. We we pushed around a bunch of scale and gambles quail, which was really neat because, you know, you read about them, you see them on TV, whatever, whatever. But even just seeing those birds down there was inspiring. And I have similar plans, Kevin. I'm, I'm, in theory, we'll see. Fingers crossed a puppy is going to be born this week that might mm. eventually uh, call our house home. Uh, and so that's definitely a long-term goal getting down and, you know, hitting Arizona and New Mexico and doing the, the old, uh, Merns, uh, scaled quail, uh, and, uh, gambles kind of trifecta mm-hmm. and even I guess Bob white to some degree in yeah. parts of New Mexico. Yeah. So, uh, you're, you're on it, Kevin, for sure. Yep. Uh, it, it, well, to- what kind of, what kind of dog? It is, uh, the breed is, is a small Munsterlander um which is obscure for sure it's a german breed it's a versatile dog but i i sort of the shorthand describe it as it looks like a mix a mix between maybe a spaniel and a setter um kind of medium to small dog and it, i i sort of describe them as the stoner version of like the turbo deutsch breeds you know you've got your you've got sort of your gsps and your you know your uh droth howers and short hairs and you know all, all that that world of, of variations of kind of super athletic german hunting dogs and then english pointers that maybe pile into that mix and they're incredible dogs that obviously you know i think arguably some of the best dogs for hunting in the world but I, well, i'm more of like i want the dog to sort of sit by the fire because the reality is you know even if i bird hunted you know if i up my game bird hunted 30 or 40 days a year 
there's still all the other days of the year in which the dog is going to be in the office, it's going to be walking down the street, it's going to be doing that and the other. So the idea behind this this breed is that it's it's got a bit perhaps more, and, and now I'm going to piss off all the owners of this breed. But again, they're fantastic. They're awesome. They're athletes. This dog is, is perhaps a little less energy um, both in the field and in the home. And, and what's more is they're – I'm pretty interested in big game blood tracking. That's sort of a side fascination of mine. I, I kind of went down the the world or the the road of looking into wired hair dachshunds. For I was going to say you're not going to get a dachshund. No, well, it, yes, no, because they're too specialized, <laughs> right? I and mean, we have a month long bow season, and I don't, I just don't think it made sense out here. But in theory, this dog, in theory, in theory, in theory, in theory. Uh, would you know point upland birds? It's a pointing breed. It would pick up waterfowl. It's reasonably insulated um, that way, and it would blood trail big game uh, for me. And then the the real plus would be rabbits because I'm actually a rabbit hunter, which is kind of sacrilege in the West, I realize. But um, hopefully, kick out rabbits. That might be asking too much, but. It's in theory would be a truly versatile dog and, and would do a bunch of cool stuff and, and also kind of maybe fit in the lifestyle and the home. So I don't know if you guys could hear my kennel going off. Uh, mm-hmm. Basically, sure. you could. Mm-hmm. Okay, I went out and some fat little boxer dog was walking around my driveway, just totally mixing, you know, messing with their minds. But um, I I have a setter mix and I have a pointer and Mm -hmm. I will say that my pointer is relatively a stoner pointer. Um, Mm. She is happy to sit on the couch and eat popcorn and watch TV um, next to a warm fire um, for the most part. But she also will go out and knock out 25, 35 miles if I want her to. And, but she's, pretty awesome um in that regard and i would like to get her into the blood trailing as well i've taken her on a couple pack outs so she Mm -hmm. kind of knows um she's also quite the squirrel hunter in her own right um she she's she's a very big fan of squirrels and has her spots in the house in the summer where she knows that the squirrels in this tree and the squirrels in this Mm -hmm. tree and she occasionally brings in breakfast and drops it on the floor um you know without even needing my assistance on it uh you know it's it's quite funny because during the summer i have about an acre and a half here um during the summer she basically goes on her own hunts um (laughs) she she points butterflies um she goes out into the tall grass and hunts crickets then she comes back around some of our ponderosas and um, goes squirrel hunting, and then she comes in and relaxes a little bit. Yeah. Well, Dennis, I'd like to point out that I've already begun the process of pissing off dog owners by characterizing English pointers as overly energetic, which many English pointer owners will jump on me. I feel like dogs are a bit analogous to rifle cartridges. Mm. That, you know, everybody's take is individual. and um, Creepor is the king of everything. Yeah, pretty much. And, and, you know, the thing, too, is I've actually probably pissed off Munsterlander owners because I distinctly remember thinking or or saying to a breeder at one point, well, like, I I don't need the dog to be the best pointing dog, best retriever, 
best blood tracker. You know, I kind of want a versatile dog that, like I said, can, can kind of off switch at home. And she quickly corrected me and said, they can be the best at all of those things. Oh, it's really? Like, really? You, uh, you can't win here. You're going to piss someone off. It is kind <laughs> of a religious thing. It is kind of a religious thing. I mean, we could get into oh. talking wolves if we want to, to yeah. really open up the can of worms. But yeah. um, do you pay attention? I forget what his name is, and I feel really bad about it because I've actually sat at a dinner table with him. But the guy who has the hunting dog podcast that oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. is friends with Steve and I guess. Yeah, wrong name. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, do you listen to his podcast at all? I do, yeah, I, or I have, I have, and yeah. he's advised a lot of first line employees. He's actually kind of working with Kevin Harlander, my coworker, right now on his Llewellyn English Setter. Um, but I, I kind of have so far chose to like not thrust myself upon Ron as like another, I don't know, leech upon his, you know, sort of knowledge base. training universe and knowledge. I'll probably get there at some point, but um, if yeah. he's at the BHA, Rondy. We'll just we'll all get liquored up with him, and <laughs> then we'll record a drunk podcast because those always go over so well at the BHA room. Yeah, totally. um, and we'll get his thoughts on dogs. Sounds like oh, a good yeah. plan. I, so. I'm, and I, I'm sure he. Uh, that's not you know everybody seems to have their take on training. Obviously, that's sort of the next step once you've actually selected a damn dog to get. But mm-hmm. uh, we'll get there. We'll get there when we come to it. And like I said, I don't. This litter is supposed to be born this week. You know, I think whether we get one depends on how many come out and how many survive. And who knows? There's plenty up in the air still. Hmm. I was very excited when I adopted my girl. I was um, probably almost as excited as having a child. <laughs> you know, and I probably just pissed off my child, my children, yeah. and my wife today. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, the children are at a different level, and I'm not having children anymore. So the dog was really freaking exciting. Oh, yeah. I, I'm I'm there, but I, I'm trying to remain sort of reserved about it. Uh, as I said, there's still some stuff up in the air, so I don't want to get too excited quite yet. So how is do you, do you have any kids? I don't. No, no, I don't. I'm getting uh, – this is the first one, I suppose. Um, first one, yeah. Kind of like I feel like it is kind of mentally a dry run for children, but I'm getting married in about a year, um, okay. and, and I think we want some kids in the long run. So, like I said, the fur baby is is our test run, perhaps. I think everyone should raise a puppy before they raise mm-hmm. children, um, yeah. because it's usually like the children are not necessarily easier than the puppy; they're usually much more committing and like the puppy, you can have them potty trained in two to six weeks. Right. So, I mean, you just have a short time period. The children, mm-hmm. it's like two and a half years. To potty training, well, several, uh, you know? several decades of, uh, work that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I did it backwards then. No, no, no dog. And I have two, two little, Two children now, so we will we'll just uh, show up with a puppy and put it on your porch. Yep. No, I don't think I can handle that. Right <laughs> you know, we'll 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 give Dennis's address out if anyone wants to donate a puppy. <laughs> uh, his daughters would love a puppy. Uh man, only if it's a. Uh, did you? Am I getting this name? The the Munster Lanner? 
Yeah, the small monster lander, which is confusing because there's also a large monster lander, which is a different breed. It's not like a variation on. They don't even look the same. No, they don't look the same. Yeah, it's sort of confusing. Uh, Interesting. Semantics of dog breeds. Small monster lander. Um. Sweet. Uh, I had a I had another question. This is more first light uh, focused. Uh, you you have a new first light. You I'll say you mm-hmm. uh, have a new uh, camo pattern out Spectre. Yep. Um, and it's it's touted as being like a white tail pattern. Um, I think it looks really good. Like <laughs> for everything. Yeah. No? I, it, yeah, it does. It does. I mean, it, it was certainly, it was developed, you know, largely in Wisconsin. Greg Farrell, our whitetail product lead, um, pioneered that. And so it was developed with that in mind, with with basically the eyes of whitetail deer in mind specifically. But I don't disagree with you. I think it looks pretty slick regardless, Dennis. Yeah. What is yeah. your, I haven't seen it, so I don't know. So um, if you were to describe it to me, since I haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're in a podcast platform right now. How mm-hmm. would you describe it? Hmm. Visually describing camo, disruptive pattern especially, is a little difficult, but it I, it basically uh, is hmm. – I'm trying to I'm trying to do this in a way in which Greg is not displeased with my oh well then let me do it but <laughs> the the idea is that it it disrupts vision at multiple as we call it engagement distances and so to visually describe it there are sort of both large shapes and smaller shapes incorporated and then a palette of again he'll be displeased I forgot this a palette of, I believe about five or six colors. Um, and the idea there again being that you have these larger shapes that disrupt vision at large, longer distances, but also um, these these kind of smaller uh, elements that break up vision at closer distances. Which which you know with whitetail uh, with whitetails and whitetail hunting um, is more common, right? I mean, I remember growing up back east hunting whitetails, and my sort of bow hunting mentor was telling me about shooting a whitetail at 40 yards uh, from the ground, and that was supremely impressive to mm-hmm. my young self at that point. I mean, 40 yards was sort of like unfathomable um, from a range perspective, and a lot of that's the environment, right? I mean, unless you're sitting a field edge, if you're in the hardwoods or pines or what have you, your engagement distance won't be that long often. And so that that is that is how I describe it, it is, as a mix of these larger and smaller shapes um, and, and like I said, uh, five or six colors um, that are designed to fool the eyes of white-tailed deer, specifically over a range of, of uh, distances. I always carry a solid now when archery hunting mm-hmm. um, to throw on because I was wearing a camo pattern one time archery hunting three or four years ago. And I was at the edge of this area where I expected elk to work in, where I had been seeing elk. Mm -hmm. And I had gotten a couple opportunities. And some cattle worked into the area. And they came almost right up on me, like almost practically stepping on me. Um, And they were incredibly freaked out by my existence Mm because there was enough visual disruption that I looked like something that they couldn't really identify. And so mm-hmm. they were like, 
getting into um, kind mm -hmm. of, you know, we're freaking out on this dude, right? Yeah. Um, so sorry about that. But after the fact, I started carrying like a solid jacket that I could throw on because I was at one point quite concerned that they were just going to charge me uh, oh. because they didn't, they seemed to be on that borderline between should we be scared or is this something we should charge and get out of here? You know, it's mm -hmm. some sort of predator that we can't see or make out when right. normally right. wearing a solid to cattle, it's like, That's a human. Just, yeah, you just kind yeah. of look at each other and maybe a little bit of disgust, yeah. you know, um, yeah. or whatever, but there isn't really a big deal with it, but it was, um, shockingly effective on the camo uh, or on the cattle um, yeah. and their mental state was vastly different you know because i also wasn't trying to conceal myself yeah. i was trying to just get out of this area because after enough of them had filtered in i was like okay the elk hunting gig here is up you know yeah. um it's, it's done i need to go somewhere else um but yeah it was it was pretty interesting yeah yeah it, uh, it happens. I was chased out of a field in Vermont turkey hunting once by a particularly uh, aggressive moo cow. Okay. <laughs> I yeah. think it was probably a dairy cow in retrospect, even. Yeah, like a uh, in my head, it was brown, but you know, I don't, memory's a little fragmented. But yeah, she, was, she wasn't stoked that I was in the pasture. Um, camo or not, I. I, I Probably was wearing camo. This would have been like 2010 or something. But yeah, she kind of, I wouldn't say she like charged me out of the pasture, but she sort of pushed me across the fence. She, she helped you. She helped you leave. She escorted yeah. you. She yeah. escorted yeah. you. I've yeah. been ex escorted out of the high country by Great Pyrenees before. Mm. Um, they've been guarding sheep and they've been like, no, you don't belong here. And yeah. pretty much steered me towards the nearest exit and vastly changed my plans. I really wish, side note, I, w I really wish that the sheep herders at a minimum would mark off an area or that there was some sort of pattern. So you're just not, you don't go into that area and all of a sudden someone walks in there with, you know, 300 sheep and a bunch of dogs that are, you know, have a very different idea of what is acceptable. Like I've been chased, <laughs> yep. chased out of an area near a 14 or one time because of sheep dogs, um, yeah. and stuff as well. So oh, yeah. I have a, I have a question for you. And I mean, yeah. if you decide to pass on the mm -hmm. question, um, it's fine. I mean, you can say pass. Um, you guys are located in a ski town mm -hmm. for the most part. I mean, I don't know if your skiing's good right now or if you're in the middle of our uh, throes of uh, mud season. You mm -hmm. know, a few brands operate out of ski towns, mm -hmm. but it seems like that would, that's very challenging, mm -hmm. you know, from a cost of living perspective mm -hmm. and a lot of things. Although Ketchum is not, say, Aspen in terms of price. It can't uh, it feels be. like it's making a run at it right now. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it, it it's it is difficult, Kevin, for sure. I mean, I think there are advantages and disadvantages, right? Um, primarily, I would say the disadvantages are the cost of living, the cost of office space, 
et cetera. Although, you know, I might stand back and say that's all a spectrum too. You know, if you were obviously working in San Francisco, all of that would be far higher. Um, so it, it's on the spectrum, but yes, that's difficult to find the space to find the housing, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I think the flip side and really why First Light is in Ketchum is the out, the access to the outdoors, right? I mean, the fact that, you know, that we can be hunting elk, deer, sometimes antelope, uh, grouse. We can, you know, we can be fly fishing for native-ish red, red band rainbows, um, you know, all literally within minutes of our office you know we've we've seen elk on the hill across from our office above the cemetery and ranged them at 300 yards you know Mm. and so i think that there is a huge benefit in in having all of that at an arm's distance and really having more than that right in terms of the outdoor rec side skiing mountain biking trail running mountaineering rock climbing you know all of that And, and that's really what birthed first light right is is a couple of guys who were messing around with wool garments um, in the mountains, not just hunting, really doing other things and and bringing that technology and bringing that fabric to hunting and saying, hey, wool's kick ass. We love, we love it in September for archery hunting elk also, but it can't be yellow if we're going to do that, right? I mean, that, that's really sort of the, the creation story of our company and, and it's very much centered in in this place and where we are as a company. No, I agree. And I mean, even though we're kind of out in a bigger city and in the desert, as far as what really is our main facility, um, it's within three hours of say our shop, which I consider that puts you within a day or weekends drive. We have such a multitude of different terrains from, you know, I mean, Dennis, he hunts high desert terrain um, a lot. I hunt, you know, usually up close to Timberline um, the bulk of the time. Um, and I don't really have that much intention of going to hunt the desert unless I have a desert bighorn sheep um, mm-hmm. tag um, or I'm bird hunting. Um, likewise, we can go to Moab and four-wheel or we can go over numerous mountain passes alpine lakes and rock climb do so many different activities it's Mm -hmm. um, quite startling and the value in that is there's so many different types of terrain we can test in relatively quickly yeah yeah i would agree i mean and i would just argue yeah it is difficult but again you know i can't see seek outside being born and I'm about to piss more people off, but you know, frankly, seek outside or first light. It just wouldn't have been born in Stanford, Connecticut, you know, in, in Newark, New Jersey. Right. I mean, no offense to those places. They probably offer many other things, but it's, I think it's critical to be in a relevant environment as an outdoor recreation company. You I don't know, think I, we'd have, I don't think we'd have ever seen the need for a hot tent had we been from Mississippi. Totally. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, you know, we would have ended up putting our creative creativity more towards swamps and bayous and alligator hunting or, or something, you know, um, it would have been totally different. 
So absolutely. Yeah, I don't. Uh, there's some guy in Mississippi screaming right now. He's like, "I hunt Colorado every year." Yeah, this is the, this is the we. This is two brands getting together to piss everyone off on social media. Um, we've we've ticked off the uh, Oryx hunters. We've ticked off the wolf people. We've ticked off the various different brands and the whitetail hunters. The dog breeders, and, yeah. and the dog, dog breeders. breeders. Yeah. You know. Um, and now we're going to tick off people in the Midwest and South as well. Anyone else we can throw in? Um. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it's relevant. And I, you know, I think maybe bringing this around, that's why Spectre, uh, our new camo pattern for, for whitetail hunting was developed largely in Wisconsin and, you know, and was tested across, um, the Eastern United States. Um, and especially in the, in the heartland, so to speak in the Midwest. You know, Greg lives in Wisconsin uh, full time. He does he he does come through the the HQ, but his team is his team is based in the Midwest, and and I think that riffs off the same theme to put together a pattern and, and to continue to put out relevant whitetail product. Um, you need to be where the whitetails are, where the eastern whitetails are specifically. Um, I and, and I, agree. I think that served us well, and and that extends too right to. So the other the other element, so to speak, of Spectre's launch is the launch of a, an initiative we're calling Camo for Conservation, and basically, you know, as we discussed, conservation's core to our brand, it's core to our ethos, and we, what I am constantly as the conservation manager striving for, is how do we integrate conservation in every element of our business. Right. How do we make how do we expand that ethos across everything we do? And, and you know, that's a that's a dream. It's a goal we're always chasing. And I'm not saying we do that currently, but this idea actually was Ryan Callahan's long ago um, and, and had sort of been floating around in our collective minds for a while. But here we saw with Spectre an opportunity to really try this out and say, OK, this is a whitetail hunting pattern. Um, let's go out and let's find, you know, the conservation group that does the best work when it comes to, you know, protecting our whitetail hunting heritage, when it comes to the management of whitetail deer advocacy, uh, on, on their behalf, et cetera. And let's pair that together. And so what has come out of it is this Camo for conservation initiative. And what that looks like is a, is a percentage of sales from every specter garment we sell. Um, will be transferred to the National Deer Association, formerly the Quality Deer Management Association, which is a, a great group of guys and gals that I've kind of grown up with um, and am honored to sort of now work with on a day-to-day basis and, and in a far closer capacity. So basically, you know, a chunk of every sale of this new pattern is, is going right to them. And, um, you know, we don't know the specifics of what will come out of it because we obviously don't know how much we're going to sell, but you know, based on our company, based on our sales, based on what we've ordered, it's, it'll be a substantial chunk of cash. And, and I think sort of a commitment to that world and to conservation on a level that we haven't, uh, we haven't previously been to, if that makes sense. So I'm really excited, um, for, for that integration of conservation in, into this, you know, into this part of our business into Spectre's launch, basically. I agree. That sounds, that sounds really good. Um, how did you guys go about evaluating 
because that's a little bit different than us, right? Like we were very into conservation. We are involved in 2% for conservation, BHA. Mm-hmm. Um, we are involved with a lot of other um, smaller groups, um, the Wilderness Society. We also put some effort um, in terms of being present, I guess you would say, for different organizations as well, which mm-hmm. I think is quite important. Um, but we don't really, like, we we stick primarily to the public land and public land species. And while we do sell to people in the East, the Midwest, um, Texas, the South, all that, so I'm sorry for being insensitive and if I made anyone mad, um, you know, because that really wasn't our intention, but we also have to have a little bit of fun as well. Um, if we can't have fun on the podcast, then why not? Uh, why do it? But, but for us, we end up much more in the public land, elk, mule deer, um, things you find on public land, mm-hmm. um, conservation realm where with you guys it's okay to go more towards that eastern whitetail part because you guys play that fence that you play you guys play in that that realm as well yeah absolutely i mean obviously you know we've been making whitetail gear actually since 2015 um and whitetail is really always almost always been you know our, our roots are certainly in idaho there our roots are in western hunting but you know, frankly, very soon we started bringing in, actually, I suppose I was the first Easterner that, that First Light hired. Um, and, you know, as we've grown, uh, we brought in folks that they grew up whitetail hunting in North Carolina. They grew up whitetail hunting in Wisconsin, Michigan, um, et cetera, right? Uh, Maine. Um, and so that's really become a part of our DNA and it's also reflected in our, like I said, in our product offerings. And so I think it was only natural to sort of bring that world into our sort of impact uh, or the impact element of our business model. Um, and, and what that is, is, uh, largely looking at it, it like is our, is our work with the national deer association and, and their work in regard to, uh, managing whitetails, advocating for whitetail hunters, um, their substantial field to fork uh, hunter recruitment program, um, you know, as well as as educating around issues like CWD, um, blue tongue, etc. And so it's it's become it's become a core part of our business. It's become a, a core part of who we are, and, and I think this program brings. Uh, the conservation side of that around for us as a company. When, when did the, um, when did they change their name from Q? So it used to be QDMA. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And now it's, now it's NDA. Mm -hmm. It was quality deer management association for decades. Um, what ironically that this change kind of came around as we were broadening our relationship with them. Um, and in regard to, to Camera for Conservation and, and other projects we're working on with them. But um, they uh, basically, uh, a while back, uh, a group called the National Deer Alliance sort of, I don't want to say spun off QDMA, but kind of cabbed out of 
of, of QDMA, and they were more DC-based, um, more policy-heavy uh, advocacy organization uh, focused around all deer species. Obviously, whitetail hunter, whitetail you know, being the most populous, but um, also wrapping in other deer species in the West. And um, their CEO uh, Nick uh, ultimately be- became the CEO of QDMA when um, Brian stepped down and sort of retired a couple of years ago. And I'm not sure which part of the chicken and the egg there, but, you know, the pandemic was kind of breaking at that point. And the idea of merging the National Deer Alliance with the Quality Deer Management Association uh, came about. And, you know, with Nick again becoming the CEO, uh, that merger, I think, was more fluid than it would have been otherwise. So those two organizations came together or perhaps arguably came back together. Uh, and and formed what is now called the National Deer Association. Hmm. Got it. And so that was within the last year, I guess, within the last uh-huh. maybe nine months or so. Yep. Yep. Okay. Exactly. Quite recently, just a couple yeah. months back. Yep. Cool. Yeah. Interesting. It's cool stuff. Everybody, go get go get your Spectre. I think it looks cool, man. I think it looks yeah. really cool. Well, and you know, if uh, you know you want to contribute that way and you're a westerner we'll let it we'll certainly let it we'll let it slide i'm It'll embarrassed to a, say i haven't seen it you haven't seen it that's because it's camo kevin you gotta look really hard yeah oh exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um yeah no i'll i'll uh I'll, I'll probably be sporting some specter out in the west here yeah yeah well we're uh, we're really excited about it. It's it's a it's a project a long time in the making, and um, pumped to finally kind of see it get up uh, and going here. Uh, just just really in the last couple of weeks, last week. Yeah. So, so you have any like super cool hunts planned? Any more exotic species? Um, <laughs> or draw that going to... tag again? Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm actually. Uh, I have to make a call today about Colorado, I believe. Um, I believe you it's do. PM tonight. You, you, you got to get it in today. Yeah. So you got to get it in. that yesterday. Yeah, that's um, a bit of a crunch. That's forefront of my mind. I've got a, one of my best buddies, best man at his wedding. He's going to be best man at my wedding. He is moving back to Denver um, this year in, I think, June and starting um, a high-powered consulting job there. And so I'm we talked hard about a deer hunt, um, probably second season deer hunt in Colorado. I know there's sort of this deer apocalypse going on with y'all's CWD management, not to get into more, I'm sure, controversial subjects. But, you know, it does seem like there are some people saying, like, this is sort of a year to go try and find a, mule, a mature mule deer in Colorado. So I Se- want... Season dates, yeah. Season dates. Yep, season, season dates yeah. are going to be... And I, I'm pretty sure choir here, but obviously season dates are going to be as late as they will be for five years, I believe. Ever, I think ever. Yeah. I, they, I mean, they, they keep saying like ever, you know. They, the dates probably are, come around again, but... Fourth, yeah. season elk is, fourth season elk is essentially a Thanksgiving hunt. This year, yeah, it's like tickling which, December. Which, yeah, which yeah. Usually, I'm, usually it's like, that's never the case. I mean, you finish up your hunting season uh, a week or 10 days before Thanksgiving. Yeah. So. Well, the short story is I should probably 
pick y'all's brain after this podcast so as not to give away relevant units for my pending application. But the deal is I'm trying to I'm trying to juggle really what his schedule is going to be. He doesn't really know yet. He hasn't really started the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's maybe not even going to start until after deer season. But he doesn't really know. So I, I need to get him on the horn today and figure that really out. Should- Really should hunt the units around Denver. I hear that they have a lot of <laughs> really big bucks there. You don't even yeah. need to get far out of just over the first pass, and you're good. Yeah, yeah. the planes, right? I, what are, what are those units like? One twenty four, one twenty eight. I don't know something like that. Oh yeah, yeah. Those those are good units as well. Those are excellent units. <laughs> what I've heard, I I'm usually just too lazy to drive over there myself, and I'm fine to shoot a forky yeah. for the for the food. And yep. so, but if I wanted a real honking deer, front range is the way to go. Yeah, um, right. You know. Yeah. Well, right, next to the, right next to the airport. I hear it's really good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and, yeah. you know, the other thing, like I said, this dog is kind of playing into it. If I've got a bird dog, uh, you know, do I want to take off a week to run down to Colorado and kind of the center of bird season? And, you know, it's first, what would be you could put season. You could put it mm-hmm. in bird dog training school. Um, I could do that. Yeah, you, I could, you know, I could. it depends on some of them are a little. I'm not going to go there. I don't want to piss yeah. anyone off. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you you could source a bird dog training school which you're happy with and put it in there for a couple mm-hmm. weeks and then hunt your tail off and come back with a dog that's moderately trained already. All the above. So I actually I got to cram all of this into my mind and make a decision. Actually, in like eight hours basically. i know i was gonna say um, so today, today shortly all right well, we'll, we'll we won't take up any more of your time then we'll, yeah. we'll give you we'll give you plenty of time to figure that out yeah start turning that over i'll tell you what i will be putting in some capacity in colorado i will be building points if i do not actually attempt to hunt next year because obviously your deer hunting is um the best in the world i would argue uh i didn't say that i mean there's i no thought deer. utah and idaho were we don't have any deer in Idaho. None of them, none of them are big either if they did exist. <laughs> All right, so you'll come here. We'll go there. How's that sound? That works. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, we, we can definitely talk about that offline, although with our new tag system, they're basically gone. Um, well, maybe we'll, maybe we'll trade hunting honey holes. You know, like, um, yeah, we'll put it, we'll, we'll have to have some sort of thing. So it's not like, oh, I got your honey hole too bad. I'm, I'm not playing by these rules anymore. Um, You're going to hit send some, at the same time. There, yep. Yeah. There, there's going to have to be someone in first. between that does the bartering <laughs> part, you know, that, that is a trusted third party to keep the honey hole secret. Exactly. So. Yeah. Um, awesome Ford. Well, Thanks for coming on. We won't we won't take up any more of your time. Good luck uh, with drawing another Oryx tag. Uh, awesome um, Colorado deer tag. Awesome. Yeah, you call it. Yeah, if you got that much luck, man, maybe we should go in as a group sometime. Um, let's go in on the Henry Mountain Bison hunt and maybe an Alaskan muskox hunt. Mm. That's those are on the list. Those are on the list. I'll say no. Yeah, more. yeah. We want we want to apply for a group with Ford. Ford, yeah, we want Ford in our group. Lucky yeah. Um, cool, man. Really appreciate it. Appreciate you taking the time. Uh, and we'll definitely talk about some plans for Colorado. So, perfect. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me on, y'all.